1: welcome to the new books network
0: welcome to new books in critical theory it's a podcast that's part of the new books network on this episode i'm talking to ben highmore about lifestyle revolution how taste changed class in late 20th century britain uh, so welcome to the podcast thank you this is a fascinating book um, and, and was actually a joy to read as well um it's it, I suppose it's a bit kind of mean uh, to other academic books to describe something as a kind of page-turner, but this really did um, sort of grip me and um, sort of rattled along, really, telling this, I suppose, um, sort of challenging story, the story that speaks in in some ways against a couple of orthodoxies about um, the class structure, the taste patterns, but also the kind of everyday lives. Uh, of people in 20, 20th century Britain. And the place to start, I suppose, is, is, is what inspired you to write the book. You know, the, the book starts with, I guess, some quite personal reflections about your childhood and, and growing up. Um, so I'm interested to know where the, uh, the sort of inspiration for the book came from.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, growing up in a, a village in Essex, which is um, about 40 minutes from London, during quite an affluent time during the 60s, um, was it so this was a this was kind of village that was growing exponentially, uh, and it wasn't any longer a kind of rural community. These were c- commuters who were either commuting to uh, towns like Chelmsford or into into London. Uh, the people that lived there were professional people, but also carpenters, uh, people who worked in factories, kind of all sorts of people. So I kind of grew up in, in a, a cul-de-sac that was kind of newly built and just kind of going around to friends' houses, I kind of noticed certain things appearing, colour televisions, things like that, a kind of, a kind of lifestyle culture kind of emerging. Um, but I was also kind of a, a paper boy, and I was kind of delivering uh, newspapers that were just kind of getting bigger and bigger as the, kind of the, the decade grew with kind of color supplements and kind of extra magazines, all with adverts and uh, ideas for how to decorate your house or go on holiday. Um, so it, it was partly that, but it was partly because I'd written an, another book Uh, about uh, the British home during the 20th century. One of the things that struck me was this kind of amazing statistic that um, in in 1918, roughly uh, 10% of the population owned the houses that they lived in. By the end of the 70s, that was something like 67%, and it kind of stuck at 67% um from 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 then on so this is kind of you know a huge change in 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 ownership and that struck me that would have kind of consequences for how people thought about class how people kind of lived their lives and um, and and how they just kind of thought about themselves in society you mentioned delivering papers and
0: and they i guess become one of the kind of key sources for the book um I mean, the the book is, I I suppose, I'd situate it as a kind of cultural history um, text where um, the kind of eclectic range of of both uh, newspaper sources, magazines, um, contemporary sort of visual culture in the time, um, bits of of kind of fiction on on stage, page and and screen, all all come together to really tell the story, I suppose, in a way that is is kind of different to uh, the sociology um, of both that era um, but which you talk about in the book, but but also kind of how historical sociology has, has been done um, more recently. And, I, and I'm interested to know, I, I guess, not if you could explain cultural history, that's quite a broad question, isn't it? But but what kinds of, I suppose, kind of methods and sources were, were you using to tell the
1: book's story? Yeah. Um, so the kind of cultural materialism that I kind of come from, which is, I guess, my methodology, sort of inspired by Raymond Williams as much as anyone, with this idea that different epochs, different kind of moments um, have what he calls a structure of feeling. And it was it was really about trying to get at that structure of feeling that I was kind of interested in. And for that, he kind of uses all sorts of uh, materials. I mean, he's a literary, he was a, a, a literary uh, theorist, literary um, historian. So his uh, material were, were 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 mainly literary, but I was kind of interested in really kind of broadening that. So my sense of trying to get at feeling was kind of using novels, but also TV programs, uh, magazines, shops, um, whole range of things, memoirs, uh, because because really the key to the book is I guess thinking about feeling about not what uh, is kind of factually historical or kind of accurate, but how the world felt to people at particular times. Um, so it, it was about thinking about how could you get at class, not as a statistic of, um, you know, how many people worked in factory how, factories, how many people worked in these occupations, but but what class felt like to people. So I did use... Um, sociology, but I use sociology not to to kind of get at the kind of truth, but as another text alongside novels, alongside uh, films and TV to, to, to think about where you could go to, to find kind of feelings.
0: Where does taste fit into this? Uh, early on in the book, you, you sort of sketch out this really kind of major transformation that happens as Britain uh, becomes a kind of consumer society. Um, and I guess um, taste is one of those elements of, of the kind of structures of feeling that you're tr- you're trying to get to. So, um, w- what's the kind of the position or, or role of taste um, in in this
1: story? Yeah. So, so I mean, the dominant understanding of taste within sociology is totally indebted to Bourdieu, and Bourdieu kind of tells a story about kind of uh, taste as um, Cultural capital that that kind of reproduces and potentially kind of alters, but he's not particularly that strong on the on on the altering business. Um, the 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 structures of society. Um, what I was kind of interested in was taking taste back to much kind of earlier periods as well. Um, so I look at kind of eighteenth century. Uh, theorists of taste like David Hume and people writing for the um the Tatler and other kind of magazines that were kind of emerging at that time and this was a kind of sense of taste uh to do with as much to do with manners as anything else Uh, but it was also about how you how you showed restraint how you showed breeding and, and and things like that now it's kind of obvious to anyone, I think, that that actual tastes change across history. You only have to look back at the things you wore when you were growing up to know that or your hairstyles when you were growing up to know how much uh, taste changes and continually changes. Uh, but I was kind of thinking about that the role of taste itself changes kind of considerably. And it changes uh, in the 60s and 70s particularly, I think, Just simply by including more people, just by kind of uh, opening up taste to kind of kind of you know wider range of people that that everyone can be involved in kind of choosing wallpapers, choosing colours, choosing uh, music uh, in in a way that that was probably new to lots and lots of um, kind of sectors of, of society. So there's just much more kind of variety, much more range, and of course there's whole industries around taste, uh, advertising, forms of promotion, advice columns. So this kind of kind of burgeoning uh, kind of lifestyle uh, culture kind of emerges not simply on programs like you know how to do up your house, uh, but also in 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 magazines. Um, Perhaps just kind of TV programs generally, you 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 see a kind of higher variety of opportunities and and, and chances of how you can live your life. And it always struck me that that the, the one of the things that in kind of the sociology of taste, you you have this kind of I don't know, kind of censoriousness around it that that your tastes either show you up and they show you for. Uh, the, the 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 person without taste, if you like, or the or the or they show you off. They show you as someone who is kind of like, oh wow, you, it required so much kind of cultural capital. What that kind of sociology is not so good. At, I don't think is is showing the kind of repercussions of what taste might mean in terms of the kind of felt world you you live in, the kind of excitements. So I have kind of an example of, um, of you know, someone just eating a yogurt for the first time uh, and kind of feeling, you know, modern, feeling like, okay, well, this is a different future is in store for me. So these kind of ideas around kind of excitement, around a lifestyle not being something to kind of classify you so much as something that you're kind of growing into, that, that the world is changing and perhaps you can kind of change with it, and 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 there's a kind of kind of future uh, futurology in that. I think that's kind of interesting and and, and quite often missed.
0: Yeah, I mean there, there are sort of several, I suppose, quite funny parts of the book where you're talking about the kind of the glamour of yoghurts and the kind of possibilities of um, various kind of um, alpine uh, resorts, and you know. Um, kind of uh, glamorous lifestyles and stuff that come from a simple sort of, you know, uh, ski yogurt bought from a supermarket. And I guess w- within the kind of um, set of possibilities that, that you've sketched out for for taste, there needs to be institutions within this. And, w- and one of the big ones um, are particular shops, um, ones that actually, you know, kind of run through the entire book. Um, and the key one, I suppose, is probably Habitat's. Um, which uh, is probably familiar with um, or British listeners are probably familiar with overseas listeners might not be um, it's fascinating to reflect on habitat now which is I, I guess uh, part of a kind of broader supermarket chain um, it certainly you know kind of didn't used to be it had a very different um, role in, in British society when it when it first got uh, kind of going and, and I suppose I've got sort of two questions about habitat one is, why was it kind of uh, so important uh, to the story you're, you're trying to tell? And then how does it sort of embody that uh, kind of future possibility that you've described uh, from changes in taste?
1: Yes, um, Habitat, there was a version of Habitat in, in the US, um, but it was called Conran. I think the, the name Habitat had already been taken. Um, so Habitat kind of starts off in 1964 in London, um and it kind of starts off as a b- boutique shop uh but very quickly grows massively so there's by by the 70s there's something like 60 uh, shops around uh the UK but there're also versions of it in Canada in Japan um in France Belgium we, we, you know is it's a kind of um a, a kind of western explosion but it's particularly to to the UK, I think. Um, so it can it, it kind of kind of really takes off. Um, and I suppose what is so different about it is that it was a shop, um, kind of how we kind of imagine IKEA today, um, where everything has a similar kind of uh, kind of feel to it, similar kind of kind of taste formation around it. Um, so um, the, the shop was kind of famous for introducing kind of flat pack furniture, various various things like that. Um, by the mid-70s, it was very much thought about as a, as a kind of mainstream, um, not cheap, but not expensive either. I think, I think we often think of Habitat as this kind of very uh, she-she, very expensive shop, which is what it became. Uh, partly in response to IKEA, but but in the seventies it, it was kind of reasonably cheap, and there was always something you could could buy that that was, that was quite cheap. Um, of course, there were lots of things you, people couldn't afford—people who were working as secretaries or nurses—but you could still go there and see the things, and you could buy versions of them elsewhere. I mean, the the classic example for me is uh, the duvet that, that 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 Habitat kind of really introduced into the uk and 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 really became the staple of of of, of bedding uh, which is where it is now um so habitat was more than just a shop it was some way you could learn about how to uh, improve or change your lifestyle how to get this look um it was set up very much with an idea of that the furniture which had traditionally been a very kind of staid um area of kind of shopping um where you you go to 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 somewhere and kind of be interviewed by a a sales assistant and go through their catalogs and make this kind of momentous decision about you know what chairs to get what kind of tables to get, and Habitat kind of altered that and 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 tried to make it like clothing fashion something that would be uh, you could kind of get instantly. Um, there was uh, you could just go around and kind of touch the stuff and sometimes take it away with you because it was kind of flat pack so there were all these kind of elements to it there was kind of speeding up of taste that is another kind of important uh part of the book but what made it really different from kind of previous shops where you might buy all your kind of um um not clothes but but kind of domestic goods if you like uh was that that unlike going to a department store where there'd be lots of different kinds of tastes being uh addressed this was a kind of sense that that you could do your entire house just from this shop uh, and that everything went with everything else everything kind of uh fitted together and it's this kind of overarching sense of taste which wasn't a kind of dogmatism it wasn't kind of all right, this is how you, you your your furniture must all be uh Dalish modernism. It was it was much more e- eclectic than that, that, that you could have um a, a plastic table, um, but you'd also have a traditional um uh butcher's block for, for, for cutting up your food. You could buy uh mugs, uh, enamel mugs, or kind of you know, that that you would see in in, in 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 French cafes, um and all these sorts of things could go together in, in this kind of eclectic sense of something like a kind of urban ruralism, if you like, a kind of sense of um you, you know, one of the things I talk about is is uh, these kind of wooden tables. Um and habitat as well as kind of supplying the goods also supplied um uh, Catalogs that you could buy in 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 news agents. They weren't just there in the sh- in in the shop. They were kind of distributed much more widely. And they also created this uh, this this book uh, called the House Book, which sold you know, millions. Um, and and again, this this showed you how to get the habitat taste. Um, you could buy it in the shop, but but you could also get it elsewhere. You could also get it from from buying secondhand uh, tables. Uh, buying um, uh, things that that you know your grandparents might have liked or got from your from from your grandparents. So this is kind of an amazing kind of eclecticism, and it and it was really kind of loosening up of taste, a kind of sense that that kind of you know all these things are available, and and this is how you can put them together in kind of interesting ways. You've
0: touched on the I guess the kind of representations um, of both consumer choices, but but the kind of broader. Um, trends and, and I guess kind of changes in, in, in lifestyle um, through through the catalogue but but also we've got representations in, in the media and then um, there are both representations and I guess to an extent kind of struggles um, in, in media and also in academia um, and this covers I guess the kind of the middle part of the book and then to sort of distill um, the middle part of the book in, into a, a slightly kind of broad question um, what's going on in terms of representations of these lifestyle changes, both in the media and then in um, academia, which is, I suppose, trying to kind of study um, how these changes are going on?
1: Yes. Um, the, 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 I mean, the, the the media question is a really, really big question because there are all sorts of different kind of representations uh, going on there. Um, so you get a lot of... Um, tv comedians who are kind of poking fun at people who are trying to uh, uh mimic a kind of certain kind of kind of affluent uh lifestyle but i suppose intellectually if I, if I can start with that um i mean one of one of the things that was really interesting for me was was an article from 1958 uh, by Stuart hall uh called um i think it's called the sense of classlessness and Stuart hall is a at the time part of the kind of new left um, writing uh, for a kind of Marxist perspective and he's kind of saying no we've got to really try and understand what's happening here uh, because caste itself is, is 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 changing in kind of major ways and for for a, a large sector of the people who are, um, who are who are kind of living this kind of affluence but but are also um, also being thought of as kind of traditionally working class, those kind of traditional associations are, ch- are changing, at, uh, and they're changing kind of in, at an extraordinary rate. And people are not seeing themselves so much positioned in terms of class, uh, but are kind of thinking of themselves in terms of kind of classlessness. <coughs> and that's the kind of key element here. And, and, and the Stuart Hall, of course, doesn't believe that the c- class is disappearing, kind of far from it. But what he's recognizing is that the kind of the structural elements of class are being obscured uh, by forms of taste that that, that, that are kind of emerging. Um, so what does it mean to work uh, for Ford or, or or work for British Leyland, uh, but come home and uh, drink wine or? go on holiday in 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 spain so it's all these kind of elements kind of coming together that that that, that he's kind of really interested so it's that sense of kind of classlessness that i was kind of interested in um so you get kind of lots of uh representation of um traditional working class uh, enjoying kind of the kind of new experiences um one of the one of the TV programs that, that was kind of very kind of key uh, to this was this program uh, set in in uh, the northeast. Whatever happened to the Likely Lads? Uh, and the Likely Lads are these two working class uh, men who grew up in in kind of back to backs, um, and and by the time the kind of seventies arrived, that one of them has gone off and joined the army. He comes home and he wants. He just assumes that the working class is still the working class. You go to the pub, you do this, you do that, and his best friend has kind of transformed his life. He's got a a, 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 a different kind of job, an office job, uh, and he's buying a kind of small, what's called an executive home. Um, and, and 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 it's the clash of these kind of elements together that that that, that spark the kind of comedy of the of the program. So so this, this kind of enormous kind of range, mainly quite kind of dismissive of of the the kind of aspirations, the kind of taste aspirations of a, of what what people are talking about as the either the new working class or the new middle class. And it doesn't really seem to matter <laughs> which of those terms are, are, are used. Um, so, so there's a kind of dismissiveness from, from, from a, a kind of, I guess, a kind of, um, a, a kind of left-wing perspective. I mean, Another classic example is the play uh, Abigail's Party, where the, the people have moved into this new house and they're, they're holding a small gathering the party the abigail's party is happening uh next door uh but, but they're 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 having a, a gathering partly because to the, the the mother of abigail needs somewhere to go to to so that the teenage party can continue but it's very much a kind of um kind of I don't know. It's a kind of uh, it's a sense of kind of poking fun at these kind of low middle class people for the for their kind of taste aspirations. So there's a kind of big element of that. So there's uh, you, you know this this couple uh, they have all these kind of the the, the, the latest designs in their house, um, but but they're kind of living a, a, a life uh, filled with tensions around um, what their kind of aspirations kind of mean. the, the main character is a, uh, a a real estate agent uh, and there are kind of enormous kind of tensions in this that, that he actually isn't earning that much money that he's under huge amounts of kind of pressure or work uh, and, and, and he kind of ends up having a kind of heart attack by battling around uh, taste so there are these kind of these representations, we show it as kind of kind of hugely important, but 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 also kind of range of different kind of feelings towards
0: it. it you've captured there, I guess, both the kind of um, sociological theories um, grappling with these changes, and, and then you've been talking about um, depictions. And one of the things I really liked about the book um, was the way that. Uh, it's neither kind of celebratory nor critical. You know, it tries to sort of uh, give a sense of, of how the period was as much about uh, struggling. Um, and, you know, you've sketched out with Abigail's party that, you know, struggling over what is um, kind of approved of, what is, um, you know, looked down upon, what kind of practices um, are seen as being a bit, you know, kind of too upwardly mobile, as it were, and, and what is given, I suppose, kind of kudos or... Uh, or status and and what one of the things the book does towards the end is to try and think about how um, these questions that primarily thought of or usually thought of in terms of social class, how they intersect with other um, elements of kind of identity or the, uh, key uh, transformations of British society and the big one obviously is uh, is, is race and immigration uh, particularly around kind of racial inequality um and I'm interested, and and I'm sort of keen to highlight when we discuss in the book um, this question of of where migration and, and then in particular race fits in uh, to your story of uh, of this period and I guess the kind of
1: um, the relationship
0: between taste class and and race.
1: Yes, I mean, I mean this was kind of fascinating for me uh, because one of the one of the things I talk about in the book is house ownership. So house ownership is kind of necessary for all sorts of things to uh, complete the, the 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 look that you're going for, uh, uh, because these would be things that you wouldn't be able to do if you can rent a house. You can kind of take it back to uh, its kind of original features. Um, so I was kind of really interested in kind of looking at the kind of sociology around race that 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 the people who are who are who are. Who are kind of buying more houses are Asian and Caribbean uh, families, partly through necessity, partly because um, you know renting uh, as as an Asian or a Black British person was was in, in, incredibly difficult uh, in the sixties. So house buying becomes kind of an Im- Im- important part of of that kind of migration story. But of course, this isn't isn't a kind of even. Field. This isn't. If you look at the statistics, um, Asian households are often, you know, hugely uh, have have many more people living in them than uh, kind of white British uh, owned houses. So it's not a kind of even playing field. Um, But also, trying to map the kind of class dimension onto migration is also really interesting um, because. those kind of migrations uh, from the Caribbean or from Uganda or from uh, uh, the subcontinent were often uh, included a, 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 a kind of class demotion. You know, you might have a kind of office job, uh, a middle class job uh, in the subcontinent or in the or in the Caribbean, but you come to 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 to, to Britain if. if 60s and 70s and you're kind of demoted you have to uh, get a job on 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 the buses or on in, in kind of factories or all sorts of things um so trying to map class or race together is 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 a kind of intricate kind of pro- problem I think and if you're looking at a kind of magazine like uh, ebony in the States which is very much kind of aimed at uh, kind of uh, a black middle class in America, it just isn't the equivalent of, of of that in the UK. There are kind of these little kind of attempts to 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 do this, but it, but but, it, but but it clearly uh, isn't working the same way. So there are these kind of uh, lags and kind of alterations, I think, around um, class and race as kind of as kind of migration happens. But you're still getting the same kinds of um, of, of kind of ideas of living a kind of lifestyle that is less uptight less um about kind of the, the parental uh, lifestyle and and kind of is is much more kind of open to to kind of a a, a looser sense of uh uh kind of behaviors if you like um so the, the, so these things happen but they happen at different kind of rates with with kind of particular kind of lags involved and particular kind of structural impediments uh, to gaining a kind a kind of uh, black and Asian middle class lifestyle, so you really only get you get the beginnings of that happening uh, by the late seventies, kind of early eighties, on a, on a kind of big scale that you could could actually talk about kind of black and Asian middle class. The
0: book wraps up. Um, with with uh, a fictional uh, character, Adrian Mole, and, and tries to kind of uh, think about what Sue Townsend's uh, books since, since the early 1980s say about um, class and, and, and taste in the period. And actually, I mean, you know, interestingly, in, in the Mole books, there are questions of uh, things like race and, and immigration in, in there too. Um, I thought I might use that as a jumping off point for a kind of concluding question. I mean, there's lots of stuff we. Um, Haven't covered in the book. There's a uh, discussion of things like gentrification. It's quite a lot about things like culinary tastes, and the kind of transformation of um, kind of lifestyle programming on, on on television, its relationship to cookery. But I'm, I'm interested in, I suppose, kind of uh, what the book tells us about contemporary Britain now. One of the things that, that is kind of striking from the Adrian Mole books is, is the way that Townsend is trying to tell. Uh, or is trying to kind of hold up a mirror to the contemporary Britain in which she was uh, writing right the way through transformations in politics from Thatcher to Blair as well as the kind of class and and consumer society transformations and I'm interested to know I I suppose where you think uh, the relationship between something like taste and class and these kind of um, broader questions of social mobility are in contemporary Britain Um, have have we still got a as the kind of aspirational possibilities represented by taste in the uh, 60s and, and 70s, um,
1: or is, is taste playing a, a kind of different function today? Yes, I mean, the Adrian Mold book was, I mean, there's, I can't remember, about eight of them, I think. Uh, mm. And um, the, the, you know, To begin with, I was quite thinking, oh, they wouldn't be kind of relevant or kind of interesting, uh, but actually, they were absolutely fascinating, partly because they cover so much ground, you know, that uh, she has this kind of idea of kind of Adrian Mole in the in the 70s. Uh, and they very much kind of tell a, a kind of historical story kind of moving through um, uh, the, the, the end of those kind of labor governments in the in the 70s, across Thatcherism into kind of Blairism and kind of beyond um, so it kind of it, it, those books do allow this kind of sweeping sense of of, of history to emerge um and they're kind of extraordinarily uh, uh kind of detailed around kind of class and aspiration but but also of course they're they're kind of sarcastic about it I mean that's the, the kind of the, the basic tenor of them um, so there are these two households kind of growing up and they're they could Constantly struggling to define themselves within the uh, lower, upper, middle, middle class—you know, this this endlessly uh, kind of negotiation of uh, whether you're upper working class or you're lower, lower middle class or you're middle, upper middle class or you know these Um, things—and the the figure of Adrian Mole is this, um, I guess, a kind of uh, kind of benign idiot who who kind of totally kind of buys into the promise that uh, you can kind of transform your life by uh, having kind of habitat goods and uh, this or buying a nice flat uh, by the 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 waterside somewhere. Um, and he's constantly kind of failing at these things. These things don't transform his life. His life is generally kind of fairly miserable. Although he doesn't see it, he just sees himself as kind of Un, unrecognized genius, uh, but the, but the whole feel of the book is a sense of a kind of um, a, a promise missold. uh You know that the affluence is is this uh, affluence and taste will be this kind of trans, transformative uh, kind of force in in people's lives. Um, going back to Stuart Hall, um, I mean one of the things that Stuart Hall uh, said in this sense of classlessness was that rather than seeing um this the, the, the kind of history move in in what was being told of at the time a kind of kind of middle classification a, a bourgeoisification of society what he uh, wanted to recognize is that this is actually a form of upward proletarianization that actually what was happening was that, that kind of larger and larger swathes of people were being kind of incorporated into a kind of kind of proletariat uh, uh, uh kind of world but it was a kind of upward proletarianization with loads and loads of 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 kind of slight uh variations and I think you can see that today uh, you know with uh, with the, the number of kind of industrial actions going on by people uh who who are professionals, but have seen their lives being kind of transformed into being kind of like kind of kind of service sector uh, kind of workers, and and they they're actually now being kind of pro- proletarianized and kind of kind of forming unions and kind of kind of kind of fighting back, um, but the but that sense of um, a, a kind of dream missold, I think, is 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 the one that kind of goes a, a, across the book and 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 is really you know about the kind of life we're we're living at the moment. Yeah, you know, I was writing this book at um, a, a time when you know huge inflation, where the cost of living was in real crisis for lots of people, not being a, a, able to afford their rents, being able to afford to to eat. Um, some of these people were what had traditionally been thought of as kind of middle class, as, uh, you know, teachers and people working in hospitals and and, and such like—and it became clear that they were, in fact, um, you know, their standard of living was going down and down and down over over the over the whole period. And this seemed to me that you know this was the kind of the politics of it was very much about the kind of uh, the dream missold. Uh, a dream is sold that that, that makes us uh, not recognise the kind of structural class world that we 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 inhabit. Uh, but I think, hopefully, that tide is changing, and 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 the growth of unions is is very much kind of a part of that kind of re-establishing a very different sense of what kind of a, a collective who don't actually own that much who aren't very much in control of their lives you know might sort of be made you know university workers might you know can very easily kind of lose their job suddenly because actually no one you know wants a degree in, in in this or that or or the other so it I think it's these kind of structural changes that are continually um obscured by kind of tastes that become kind of really really important and I think also there's a sense that, that that kind of taste again is is kind of changing, to do with environmentalism. Uh, so there's the, the the very much the idea of kind of kind of affluence is is changing itself because of the ecological crisis we're facing.
0: I mean, the the book is a significant achievement in, in many ways, and it, it's sort of a bit a bit kind of mean to then say so what are you going to do next where's the where's the next book but it it strikes me from what you were saying a sort of re-examination of uh taste and class in uh you know 2010s or or the kind of austerity period would would be really rich as actually would the relationship between taste and um, a very different pattern of of consumption in, in the environmental context or are you thinking about doing a completely different project about something else entirely.
1: Uh, well, yes, I just actually finished another book, uh, which is very, very different, but it has some kind of crossovers. Um, so, my the the book that I've just finished, uh, which will go out next uh, next autumn, um, is about playgrounds, about a history of playgrounds, but particularly about uh, experimental playgrounds. Um, so, so this is kind of looking, I suppose. At a really different aspect of 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 class uh, gentrification and and the kind of childhood. So these this is about uh, what we we'll call ch- junk playgrounds, adventure playgrounds, um, which often kind of emerged in, in 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 places of kind of extreme poverty. Um, but it's also looking at that as a, as as a kind of history that you, you know we have to a degree lost, although you know, there are. Quite a few kind of experimental playgrounds, and and, and ones kind of starting up uh, all the time. But it but it is one that we should go back to partly because it's it's a it's a really um, useful way of thinking about how you might um, how 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 children might become agents around kind of climate change rather than just kind of victims of climate change. How they might um, kind of emerge new ways of thinking and 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 acting.